Our Father, the scriptures tell us that no, those who know thy name will put their trust in thee. The scriptures also tell us that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. We're also told that there is no, under, no other name under heaven given unto men by which they may be saved except by the name of Jesus. We thank you for your name. We thank you for the power of the name of Christ. We thank you for all that signifies. And from our study of the scriptures over the years, we've learned that you have many different names in scripture, and each of those names designates something specific about your character, the kind of God that you are. You are our savior. You're our protector. You're our strong deliverer. You are our sovereign keeper. You are our healer. You are, um, gosh, it just goes on and on and on and it goes on. We, um, We forget that wherever we are, in whatever situation that we're in, we can just simply call upon your name. You said in Psalm 50, verse 15, call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you, and you will honor me. So we come to you our Father, and we approach you in the name of Jesus, and because of what Jesus has done, he makes it possible for us to come into your presence at any moment, at any time. In the Old Testament, only one man could go into the Holy of Holies on one day a year, and that was the high priest. But because of the blood of Jesus and what he has done, Every high priest in the Old Testament walked in with a lamb in his arms to make a sacrifice. Hebrews says when Jesus walked in, he had no lamb in his arms because he was the lamb. He gave his own life for us. And he died in our place. And he is our savior. And when we trust in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins and we turn from our sins and we turn to him, there is forgiveness. And we are given a new heart and we're given a new relationship. And we are now your sons. And we can call upon you in any time, in any situation. And you have our undivided attention. How great, grateful we are for that privilege. It's good to be reminded of truth. You've not forgotten us. You guys in here carrying crushing weights and burdens and situations that uh, they're waiting to sort out and they're waiting for answers and 
maybe a business deal, maybe a health issue, maybe this or that. It's complex. It uh, is, the situation is being prolonged. There's mystery to it. We don't know what to do, except call upon your name and trust in your faithfulness for the next 12 hours. That calms our heart, it stabilizes our spirits. Thank you that uh, your loving kindnesses never cease. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, oh Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we are, we're, we're back to Ephesians 6.4. We talked about fathering last week, and I want to take another pass at the issue of fathering. We mentioned last week that when the Scripture talks about fathers, it applies to grandfathers. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, when they were going to go into the land, into the promised land, and you'll recall They'd been in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years, and then God used Moses to lead them out. You remember all the, the, the ten plagues and the opening of the Red Sea. But they're going to go into, a prom, into the promised land, and they're going to start a new civilization. They had to wander for 40 years because of the unbelief of ten of the twelve spies. But in Deuteronomy 6, Moses says, Now this is the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord. So he's talking to the fathers. And he's talking to the father, uh, the grandfather, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord. Um, the responsibility for leadership of the family is on the men. It's on the fathers and it's on the grandfathers. Which takes us to Ephesians 6.4, where we were last week, and its corollary, which is in Colossians 3.21. Uh, in Ephesians 6.4, we read, fathers do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In Colossians 3.21, uh, corollary verse, very similar, but with a little different nuance. It simply says in 3 of 21, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. This, this um, semester that we're in the middle of, we're calling it landmines because there are different traps. There are different wires you got to be aware of and you got to be on the lookout for. Um, we started this study in Ephesians 5, verse 15, where it says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise men, uh, making the most 
of your time because the days are evil. That's certainly true of our time. So we want to be very careful how we walk. Now, here's the deal. When a guy gets serious about Christ, the enemy gets serious about you. And so what he's going to try and do is literally trip you up. He'll try to ambush you. When you begin to follow Christ, Paul said, Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. The name of the game in Christian leadership is that we all have those that we're responsible for, and they're following us. But the name of the game, as Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. We're all following the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're serious about following Christ, the enemy, who had no concern about you before you weren't before you uh, before you got serious about Christ, now he's got some concern about you because you're seeking to influence those around you for Christ. So he'll try to trip you up. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Why? Because there are landmines, there are wires. You got to be aware of what you're doing. He's going to try and take you out. Tonight we're going to look at a landmine. Um, there's two parts to it. We're going to look to the landmine, and it is in relationship to fathers in these two verses. We're going to look at the landmine of a double standard in the life of a father. The landmine of a double standard in the life of a father. When I was in college, I was in a church that had a, it was a big church, had a real active college ministry, and I was involved in it. And uh, I actually got, at some point, I got hired part-time as an intern in this church in the college ministry. And there was a, a gal um, who had taken a year off from college, and she was working in that ministry's office as a secretary. and. So I got to know her a little bit, just, you know, didn't date her, just knew her, and her family went to the church, and where I lived was fairly close to the part of town in which she lived in, and <clears throat> one of my roommates started dating her sister. So long story short, I got to know her and her family. In fact, family had us over for dinner several times over, you know, a few years. Uh, you'd look at her family and say, that's a Christian family. You'd look at her dad, at least I did, and I, said, and I would say to myself, now that's what a Christian man should look like. He was, um, uh, he was a leader. Uh, wasn't quite sure what he did in business, but he seemed to do really well. Uh, so I'm at church with his big leather Bible, always taking notes. Uh, family was, you know, Two, two daughters in college, son in high school, just seemed like it was a well-ordered, loving, gracious, good family. I mean, that's the deal right there. I mean, you're looking at a Christian family, you're looking at a Christian man, kind of the model family going on there. I remember when I graduated, uh, was on my way to seminary, still had friends in that church, and I remember when one of my friends said, you're not going to believe this, but there's devastating news about that family. I said, what happened? It turns out the father 
has another family. Just on the other side of big area, but on the other side, 30, 45 minutes away. Another family, another wife, another set of kids. What? I've, I've run into this twice. Twice. But I got to know this family. And, and this guy, I mean, this guy lived by the book. He was, uh, he kind of reminded me of, a, he kind of reminded me of a military guy. Just kind of, he, he was um, disciplined. He was thorough. He, just one of those military guys that he, he's organized, he's thorough. You, you could see the guy, you know, leading a group of men. Um, good people skills, not great, but could get along. He, he, was, uh, he was organized. Everything was together. Everything was tidy except his own personal life. I never saw that family again. Anybody out of that family. But I'm gonna tell you what happened to the kids in that family, all right? Never talked to one of them. What happened was their father provoked them to anger. If that were your father, wouldn't you have been provoked? Because you'd been lied to, you'd been deceived. You get it. I'll tell you the other thing that he did to him. He completely exasperated and frustrated them. Because everything they thought was true about him wasn't. Uh, I'd, I want to give you six observations about the double standard father. And I'm going to go ahead and just knock them out, and then we're going to circle back and look at them. Six observations about the double standard father. Um, Number one, the double standard father is found throughout Scripture. We'll come back and I'll show you one or two examples. Number two, by the term double standard father, I mean a man, and this is a little lengthy, I mean a man who has a carefully constructed public Christianity a carefully constructed public Christianity that conflicts with a compromised personal behavior. So, a carefully constructed public Christianity that conflicts with a compromised private behavior. Three, a Christian man 
who is not fighting off the double standard is double-minded. Or as James puts it, unstable in all of his ways. That's James 1. Fourth observation. And again, we're going to cycle back through these. A double standard man is neglecting his salvation. You say, I mean, was this, did this guy know the Lord? Well, only God knows. But you see, um, we've all got double standards who follow Christ. We all have things that we know are wrong that we keep rationalizing and keep doing. This, this one's pretty extreme. This family I'm talking about, this guy I referred to. We'll, we'll, we'll look at Hebrews 2 in a moment. Number five, a double standard man is slowly drifting. He's slowly drifting. And he's drifting to shipwreck. Here's number six. A double standard man is seriously undermining the gospel in the lives of his own children. I'll say that again. A double standard man is seriously undermining the gospel in the lives of his own children. This is sobering stuff, and it's very, very serious stuff. Um, so, Douglas Wilson has written a book called Father Hunger. It's a very good book. I want to start with this tonight. This section I'm going to read from, he calls it Fathers as a Theology Primer. And some of you guys, I just lost you. Theology, and this is where you shouldn't get lost. Theology is the study of God. And a primer, uh, a primer is first teaching. When I was a little kid in Sunday school, they had primary class. I mean, I was in there until I was 19. It was a little embarrassing. <laughs> but it's, it's real simple stuff. It's real basic. You, you know what a primer is? It's Dick and Jane. I bought a set of Dick and Jane original books right around Christmas time. Found it on Amazon. It was $9,000. That's a joke. Dick and Jane, it's all time. I mean, you can learn to read through in Dick and Jane. See Dick run. See dog bite. See Dick cry. 
see Jane play nurse. It's just real basic stuff. So fathers is a theology primer. This is the basics of fathering. Now listen to what he has to say. It sure applies to this. The family is an analogy of the cosmos, of the world, of the universe that God has made. God intends for children to learn about his fatherhood by this analogy first. In other words, little children learn the truth about God the Father through their earthly family and their earthly father. That's where they learn about God first. From their daddies and from their grandpas. Papa, whatever you're called. A two-year-old boy shaking the crib at 3.30 a.m. is not doing so because he is troubled by the vision cast in some philosophical treatise he has read. That's not why he's shaking the crib at 3.30. He is not being vexed by theological or philosophical problems, but he is studying what fatherhood is like. Fathers are speaking about God the Father constantly. They do not have the option of shutting up. What they are saying may be true or false, but they are not in a position where they can refuse to say anything. A father who just sits and stares, a father who is down at the office all the time, a father who deserts the family, a father who just donated sperm at the sperm bank, all of them are speaking. Every one of them is saying something all the time. A father who teaches his son to swing a bat, a father who listens to his daughter explain why Peter Rabbit should not have disobeyed, a father who kisses their mom on the lips, a father who reads for hours to the family in the evening, all of them are speaking too. But this is not said as though children are just empty receptacles ready to mindlessly receive whatever the father puts in. No, earthly fathers need to understand that this atheism dynamic, because we are fallen, and let me stop for a minute. Um, Douglas Wilson debates a lot of these new atheists. He ties atheism to fatherlessness. Now, I may get to this book and I may not. He quotes this excellent book by Paul Vitz, V-I-T-Z, called Faith of the Fatherless. Subtitle is The Psychology of Atheism. This is a brilliant book. Looks at many of the great atheists in history, looks at some of the contemporary atheists that we hear about on the news all the time, taking shots at Christianity, has extensively read their biographies and demonstrates the role of their fathers in turning them to atheism. It's very thorough. This guy, Vitz, I believe, tenured professor, I think, I think at NYU, he wouldn't get tenure today, for sure, but he's in his late 80s, I believe, and retired. 
So you got in under the radar. It's an astonishing book. Douglas Wilson has referred to it, has been discussing this, um, this issue of this dynamic of atheism and fathers. So let me pick it up again. Earthly fathers need to understand that this atheism dynamic, because we are fallen, is also at play in their relationship with their children. There is a self-will that wants to reject parental authority, and in the words of every two-year-old, me do it. Me do it. Is that not true about two years old? Me do it. There is also a childlike dependence that wants the father to overcome that disobedience in order to prove that he loves the child enough to deal with as small an obstacle as this petty and childish rebellion. But when little children rebel, they know, they know what they're doing, and, they're, and, and they know their own hearts. They want someone to love them enough to tell them, no, you can't do that. Children need to be fathered despite their resistance. And they want to be fathered, and the ratios between those two sentiments vary with each kid. A wise father studies those ratios and works with them. Some kids are compliant. If your first kid is compliant, you think you're brilliant. <laughs> and then the next kid comes along. Junior Antichrist. <laughs> and you're on your face before God asking for mercy. Where did this kid come from? Well, different than the first, ratios are different. You're going to have to adjust your parenting to the different ratios. You got a compliant kid? All right. The ratios are this. You got a, you got a stubborn, strong-willed little kid? You're going to have to play with the ratios. So, the double standard. Number one, that's, that's the key, the key thing. Double standard. Uh, the way you live and the way you father affects your children. I will read this from Vitz. Uh, as he sets out the case for why he is doing, writing this book, and he's in the academic world, in the academic community, and he refers to Freud and Freud's Oedipus complex and all this kind of stuff. And okay, he's, he's got to set it all up. At a certain point, he says he has a new theory of atheism, and he calls it the defective father hypothesis. And then I'll just jump into the paragraph. Uh, he says, in fact, I have developed an undeveloped thesis from Freud himself. Now, Freud's not what you call a biblical scholar. <laughs> Freud was out of whack. But he found something in Freud that was accurate, and that's a nugget, and caused him to get on this new uh, 
train of thought on atheism. In his essay on Leonardo da Vinci, Freud remarks that psychoanalysis, which has taught us the intimate connection between the father complex and belief in God, has shown us that the personal God is logically nothing but an exalted father and daily demonstrates to us how youthful persons lose their religious belief as the authority of the father breaks down. Now, that's really an interesting statement. God is the exalted father. Our first fathers teach us. That's, where do we get our concept of God the Father? From your earthly father. So did your earthly father desert you? Did your earthly father abandon? By the way, did he desert you? Was he not there? Did you grow up without a father? There, I've, I've met guys that are 60, 70 years old still trying to crack down their fathers. I will never leave you or forsake you. Our God says. When the authority of the father breaks down, the human father. And why would his authority break down? Because of inconsistencies. Because he says one thing and does another. Because of a double standard. See, when, when the father's integrity breaks down, what it does is, in some way, shape, or form, it actually reflects on, can I trust God the Father? Now, there are levels of this, there are stages of this. He says, this interesting observation requires no assumptions about unconscious sexual desires for the mother, or even about presumed universal competitive hatred focused on the father, some of Freud's other's ideas. Instead, Freud makes the simple and easily understandable claim that once a child or youth is disappointed in or loses respect for his earthly father, belief in a heavenly father becomes impossible. Um, the double standard. I would suggest to you that this family that I referred to, this model Christian family, I would suggest to you to even to this day, those adult children, are dealing with exasperation, they're dealing with uh, anger, and it has caused them difficulty even in their own relationship with God the Father. Why would you allow this? Why would you permit this? How, wh why did it happen to us? Why couldn't our family be like any other family? It, it, it just is what happens. It's the fallout of sin. Now, let's go to number two. When I said a, a double standard, I defined it as a carefully constructed public Christianity that conflicts with a compromised private behavior. So here's a phrase. Daddy, how come you can watch that movie and I can't? Well, that's because I'm a hypocrite, son. <laughs> and when you grow up, you can be just like me. That's a double standard. Does that make any sense? See, what it, that makes no sense. I mean, if you're going to do that, you might as well run for Congress. <laughs> Not everybody in Congress, but many of them, because Congress will make laws and exempt themselves. 
That's lousy leadership. That's the worst kind of leadership. What it ought to be is, son, I don't watch movies like that. I'm not going to allow you to watch movies like that. You see, Father set the standard. It's called integrity. We'll, we'll hear about the problems with infrastructure, and now and then a bridge that's old, decrepit, you'll read about it, it'll collapse. Maybe someone's driving on it. Maybe people die. What happened to the bridge? Well, through time, the bridge was compromised. And if they spot it, they'll close a bridge. And they'll say, we're closing the bridge because there's no structural integrity. What do they mean by that? The pieces that were put in place don't add up anymore. When they were put in place, everything added up. But they don't put in place anymore because there's been compromise. Uh, when something's been compromised, there's no congruency. The, the pieces don't add up. I took a set of pots and pans back to Costco this week. I had my receipt. I had my ID card. I had everything. I didn't have the original box, but it was all in there with paper and the whole thing. And, uh, you know, it was heavy. I said, Mary, I'll take it back. Okay. I walk in, and the lady takes it out, and she start, I explain to her, and she starts in, and she looks at me, and she's pulled up on the computer, and she said, you're missing one lid. And I said, what does it matter? I didn't say that. I knew right then I was toast. I was missing a lid. Um, I was missing a piece. I got 12 out of 13. There's no integrity to this. You're missing a lid. I had to go and get the lid. Mary found the lid. I went back. I went in. There was congruency. All the pieces fit. Got my money back. Walked into the store and spent every dime of it. <laughs> on stuff I hadn't planned on buying. A little humor there in the midst of this. You get this? Integrity is when the different pieces add up. When there's a double standard, it doesn't add up. There's a, there's a public persona, Christian man, Christian family. This guy ran the finances of that megachurch I was in. He was a respected man in the church. He was a respected leader. He was looked to for spiritual teaching, for spiritual insight. 1 Timothy 3 says that an elder must be the husband of one wife. Literally, in the Greek, he must be a one woman kind of man, and this guy wasn't. Flip over to Psalm 101 real quick. Uh, Psalm 101 deals with the connection between the public and the personal. Because you see, we're not just to be hearers of the word, we're to be doers of the word. 
In Psalm 101, uh, the end of verse 2, David says, I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Integrity is not just to be a public persona at church with, with, the, with the well-worn Bible with all the study notes. Christianity is to be lived out in the home. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart, not in behavior and things that I do and say that people will think I'm a certain way. Um, so much of life today is people want to give the appearance of integrity. How many times have we seen? This has been going on for decades now. Some guy, you, you, you know, he's going to run for office, and, and so gets his wife up there and his kids and all of this. He's a family man. He's a family man. He wants to give the appearance of integrity. He's a family man. And then it comes out, the guy's a philanderer and an adulterer and a liar and a deceiver. And it's, it's, it, it's just given the, give the appearance. Well, you got a family who's watching and you got kids. And they see all, they see through that stuff. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. So I read a lot. And, and sometimes I read stuff that's worthless because I can't take in any, any from where, my mind is shot. I can't take in anything else. Uh, I've studied, I've read my stuff, you know, that's what I do. But sometimes to give my mind a break, I'll read, I didn't used to do this, but in my 40s I started reading fiction. I never read fiction. Then my buddy Stu Weber said, you ought to read Louis L'Amour because it'll help you sleep at night. Because there's there's, it's well written, there's a good guy, there's a bad guy, there's a girl in trouble, and the good guy comes along and just beats the tar out of the bad guy and you get closure. <laughs> that's pretty much Louis L'Amour. But it's really well done and it's really well written. So, and, and Stu had had major back surgery and was in the hospital for like two and a half months and he read every Louis L'Amour book there was. And so I started reading, and Louis L'Amour helps me calm down. I don't have to think about it. I mean, I'm good for about a page and a half of Louis L'Amour, and I'm out. <laughs> on a plane, after I've done a conference and spoken, you know, a number of hours, I get on a plane, and you know what I read one time? Every cowboy game, win, lose, tie, Tom Landry, you get on the plane. On the way back, you know what you do? You pull out Louis L'Amour. Because it just helps you calm down. So I'll read some fiction, and every once in a while, uh, you know, now if you get Kindle, they'll, you know, here's another guy. I saw a tip. This, guy, this guy's kind of a new Lamour. You know, he does some good stuff, and sometimes, that, most of the time, that's not true. But I read this guy, and then that linked me to something else. And I'm reading this thing this week that I looked at, didn't know anything about it. And there's a section I'm reading, and I went, you know what? And I went, oh, you know, I don't like what, this isn't good. And it was real brief, and I was disappointed. All right, well, okay, I'll go on. Got past that. Then I kind of run into it again, a small little step, and you go, you know. And then I ran into it a third time. I said, that's it. I'm not reading this crap. I'm not going to do it. I was convicted because of this verse. The third point I made is that the Christian man who is not fighting off the double standard is double-minded, or to put it another way, he's double-hearted. James 1, if you look at it, uh, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. You're unstable. You don't, uh, where are your convictions? You know, you're, 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 you're pulled to Christ, but you're pulled by the world. Um, 
And there is a, st a strong gravitational pull all the, all the time to Christian men away from the things of the Lord. Um, let's go to number four. A double standard man, you can call him a double-minded man, same thing, is neglecting his salvation. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to read these words. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. All right, so the question is, what have they heard? Go to Hebrews 1. And keep your finger in 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many fortunes and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world and he is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then he goes on and compares Christ and says he's better than the angels. He's greater than the angels, etc., etc. This is what had been spoken. In these last, first the prophets, and now in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. Uh, the gospel is about the Son. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. So when he says, for this reason we must pay much, we, in two, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, what we've heard is the gospel, what we've heard is about Christ. He says, we must pay, we much, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Watch this, and this would be what we covered in number four, which is a double standard man is slowly drifting to shipwreck. That's out of this verse. For this reason, we must, pay, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. There, <laughs> there is a danger there is a danger in the Christian life to Christian men who have met Christ and who know Christ, and the danger is the danger of neglecting their salvation. Why would they neglect their salvation? That's crazy to neglect your salvation. Sure it is. So does the enemy show up in your office and say, hey, Steve, let's neglect your salvation today. No. That's a frontal attack. He wouldn't do that. That makes no sense. No, no. So what he does is we neglect our salvation through something not that's a frontal attack that's very, very subtle. Uh, there, is no, there is nothing more subtle than a drift. I grew up in California. And if you go to the beach and it's not a surfing beach and it's not the big 25, 30-foot waves in the winter, uh, you're just out on a beach and you get past the little two-foot, three-foot waves, you can get a raft and you want to just chill out and have a nice, you can, you can get past those little waves and then what you do, you get on your raft and you got all your sun stuff on and, and you just get on that raft and you kind of close your eyes and you just, you're just relaxing. And you're just relaxing and it's so calm and it, it's so nice and it's not the office and there's no interruptions, you're just and it's so calm, you can, actually, you, can, you can actually fall asleep. And you're off, 
you're just off the beach there in Southern California, and you wake up and you're in Maui. Because <laughs> there's a current. And that current is so subtle, and that current is so silent that you can drift. And you don't even know what's happening. The sixth point we made, sixth observation. Uh, a double standard man is seriously undermining the gospel and the lives of his own children. Flip over with me to Genesis 13. I want to show you this in the Old Testament out of a man by the name of Lot. Genesis chapter 13. Lot was a God-fearing man. Um, so what's happening in Genesis 13 is that Abraham and Lot, who are related, uh, they both have large flocks. If you look at um, verse 5, of 13. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. So there was strife between their herdsmen. So in eight, Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between us. Um, he says in nine, is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if to the right, I'll go to the left. In other words, Lot, this is ridiculous. Let's fix this. So you go ahead and choose. What, you, you choose what land do you want, and I'll take whatever you don't want. Okay? Ten. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of the Jordan, which, and that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. Eleven. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinners against the Lord. So, you choose Lot, and he chose. He looked around, yeah, this valley's unbelievable, and it's open, and shoot, it's well watered. Why wouldn't I take this? So he takes it. And it was right up, you know, it was edging right up against Sodom. Okay, now I'll go to Genesis 19. Abraham says, fine. He heads the other direction. Genesis 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Something happened. Because in 13, he had taken all the land that was near Sodom. Now... He's not only in Sodom, he's sitting in the gate at Sodom. By the way, all of the, the gate was the financial district of Sodom. It was downtown. Uh, the courthouse was there. Uh, the title companies were there. The real estate company. Everything that happened in the city happened at the gates. Everything. So not only did he move near now, now he's in, and now he's in a position of influence, and he has assimilated in to what before he wouldn't have got near. Well, he was near, but he was going to keep his distance. But now he's right in among them and a leader among them. 
we're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. There's a fine line. So now, the angels come, Lot sitting in the gate. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, bowed down. He said, Behold, my lords, please turn aside. He's going to show them hospitality, which was part of the culture. Uh, spend the night here. We'll take care of you. Uh, they said, However, no, we'll spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. Verse 3. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. He prepared a feast for them. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. They called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may have relations with them. New American Standard, literally, that we may have intercourse with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you so that you may do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men. What? Are you, are, you, are you out of your mind? This was a God-fearing man. But something had happened. By the way, does that strike you as a double standard? So what happened? There was a drift. There was a drift. There was a drift. So what do we do? Go separate ourselves from become hermits? Start a monastery? Separate ourselves from the world? I don't see that in Scripture. Turn with me to Psalm 1. We, we, don't, we don't put walls around us and try to uh, shut out the world. Uh, the world needs the gospel. We're salt and we're light. But here's what can happen. What, what can happen is there can be a drift that occurs and the drift is so subtle, we don't even realize it's happening. But instead of being an influence in the world to those around us, we become influenced by those who are around us and don't know the Lord. Uh, Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. I would suggest to you that there was a drift in Lot's life where as he got closer and then got in Sodom, and maybe someone had a deal in town, and, you know, he, he could build some condos in there, and he traded some land, and the next thing you know, he's in. Um, I don't know what happened. But suddenly he's in, and he's surrounded, and he's probably very, very busy, and he's got a lot of action, and he's a lot going on, and uh, my gosh, he used to do Bible study, but man, gosh, it's just so much going on, you know? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. This, this is about influence. Who influences you? Now watch this. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. 
you don't build a wall around yourself and your family and get away from the world. You're in the world. You got to function in the world. You got your job. You got your task. You got your family. Um, you're, you're salt and light for Jesus Christ. Um, well, how do I function? How do I influence without them influencing me? Well, the answer is in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. You're in the Word. He will, and, and so here's a guy like this. Here, here's what happens. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water because he has no non-Christians around him. It's not what it says. No, you have them around you, but you will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does, he prospers. Not done with Lot. Um, they basically tell him, get out of the way and get your family and get out of here and don't look back. His wife looks back and you know what happened to her. Turned into a pillar of salt and God destroys him. If you flip to verse 30 and 19, he's got his two daughters, his two virgin daughters. Lot went up from Zoar, stayed in the mountains, his two daughters with him for he was afraid to stay in Zoar and he stayed in the cave with his two daughters. And here's what happened. The firstborn daughter says to the other daughter, the city's destroyed, everyone's destroyed, we'll never be married, we'll never have a family, so let's get our dad drunk tonight. And, uh, and they did on two consecutive nights, and he impregnated them both, and they both bore, bore children. And those children became heads of nations that have become enemies to this day. Um, they committed incest, and it was the idea of the girls to commit incest with their own father. But does it surprise you? You see, does it surprise you when the most important man in their life had a double standard, continued to drift, continued to go deeper away from the things of God, even offer his virgin daughters to this horde, does it surprise you? No, it doesn't surprise you at all. Uh, that was the point in number six. A double standard man is seriously undermining the gospel and the lives of his own children. C.H. Spurgeon was called the Prince of Preachers. He died in the late 1800s. A case can be made the greatest preacher in the history of Christianity since the Apostle Paul. Phenomenally gifted man. Um, uh, he, he, ha he had a college. He, he, he not only had Metropolitan Tabernacle, the largest church in London, um, he also was head of 55 different agencies, ministries that he started, including an orphanage. Uh, would respond to 500 letters a day. Most with just a brief note. But this man was busy. He also had a college for young ministers. And as he gave these lectures, it was taken down in shorthand and put into a book, which I first read probably when I was 30 years old, uh, and the book is called Lectures to My Students. I was reading it again this week. And he has a chapter in there, and I think it's the first chapter, and in talking to these young men going to the ministry, he has a chapter called The Minister's Self-Watch. And he makes the point, uh, and back in his day, you know, this was not uncommon, but in London, where he lived, 
you'd see someone walking down the street, they would take their pocket watch out of their vest, and they would pull it out, and then they would look up. Anyone know what they were looking for? They were looking for Big Ben. Because everyone in London checked their watch against Big Ben. You see? You ever heard of Greenwich Mean Time? You got an atomic clock? You got an atomic watch? You got an atomic iPhone? That's all synced. You know what that's synced to? Greenwich. Well, before there was Greenwich Mean Time, there was Big Ben. And you'd see somebody in London, they'd stop, and they'd look up, and then they'd calibrate their watch. And Spurgeon said to the young men, you're a pastor in a little village, in a little town. You're Big Ben. They're taking their cues from you. They're going to calibrate to your standard. You're a husband, you're a grandpa. Your family's going to take their cues from you. And what they don't need to see is a double standard. There needs to be integrity. To such a degree that what you say can be trusted because it's borne out by how you live. Not that you live perfectly, but that when you sin, when you do damage, when you hurt, when you reconcile, you get it, you handle it quickly. You don't let sin foul and fester. You get a cut, you get this, you don't want it to get that, that you want an infection. You don't, want gang, you don't want the green going up the arm. You deal with the stuff and you deal with it quickly. Spurgeon talked about the minister's self-watch. Turn with me to Proverbs 4, if you would. Ah, but before you do, before you do, let's, let's talk about Hebrews just for a minute. I ask the Lord to not let me forget this tonight because it's so critical. I gotta, I gotta put this in on drifting. Then we'll go to Proverbs four. Hebrews is um, Hebrews is a book that has warnings, and the warnings have to do with not hearing what God has spoken to us in His Son. Um, I'm going to give you just, I'm going to give you one, two, three, four, five um, steps that are in the book of Hebrews, and these are all part of the drift. This is how you neglect your salvation. It doesn't say in Hebrews 2 they rejected salvation, it says they neglected. So let me give you these five observations that I got from Warren Wearsby. The first warning is this is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It's the warning of drifting from the Word. The second warning is in Hebrews 3, 7, in the chapter 4. And here's where you go from drifting from the Word to doubting the Word. Doubting the Word. And here the issue is a hard heart. When you're drifting from the word, the issue is neglect. 
So we've got drifting from the Word. The issue is neglect, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Secondly, you've got doubting the Word, a warning against that, 3, 7 into 4. The issue is a hard heart. Then three, you've got dullness towards the Word, 5, 11 into 6. The issue is sluggishness. Can't quite get into the Word. You're exhausted. You're tired. You're worn out. Number four, chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. Now you've got despising the Word. Here the issue is willfulness. It's like a little two-year-old, me do it, me do it. I know what you say, but I'm going to do it my way. Then number five, here's the next step in the drift. Hebrews 12, 24 to 29, now you've got defying the Word. And the issue here is refusing to hear. By the way, when you get all along the line, God's going to discipline Christian men. If you've never been disciplined by God, Hebrews 12 says, you're not a child of God. For every son he takes unto himself, he disciplines. Not because he hates us, because he loves us. A good father disciplines. A good father corrects. Uh, the whole point, uh, God disciplines me, it says in Hebrews 12, for my good and to those who are trained by it. That's the whole point of discipline. It tr God disciplines me. A good father disciplines me to train me. No, son, you don't go that way. But do you, do you see the drift? There are phases to the drift in the book of Hebrews. And God will discipline all the way through. And if you continue, and you continue to be willful like a two-year-old, the discipline will increase. You want to get out of the discipline? Repent and turn to Him. That's how you get out of it. It's real simple. Why would you keep fighting Him? You're not going to win this deal. Why don't you repent relent, submit, and receive forgiveness and surrender and say, not my, not my will, but thine be done. Yeah. Okay, Proverbs 4. So in Proverbs 4, here's what you've got. As Spurgeon had a minister's self-watch, here's what I call the Christian's man, the Christian man's self-watch. Proverbs chapter 4. This is what enables you to fight off the double standard as a father and as a grandfather. Uh, Proverbs is a father teaching his son about how to live life skillfully. So in Proverbs 4, verse 20, my son, now let's, now who, who is speaking here? Solomon? Let's say this about Solomon. For a great deal of his life, Solomon lived a double life. My son Josh, when he was maybe a little guy, seven, eight, came in one night, and he said, Daddy, let me ask you a question. He said, yeah. He said, Solomon. I said, yeah. Wasn't he the wisest man who ever lived? Yeah. Didn't he get all messed up, Dad? Yeah. How can that happen? I said, well, Josh, there's a difference between wisdom and obedience. He had great insight into the truth. But just because you have great insight in the truth doesn't mean you're doing the truth. That was Solomon. So you see, Solomon had some credibility issues in his own life. Towards the end of his life, 
we studied Ecclesiastes, he obviously repented and got squared away. It's another story. Now, look at 20. He says, my son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Now, here we go. Here is how you fight off a double standard. And it begins, it begins, he's going to mention four things. The first one in 423 is a careful heart. A careful heart. 423 says, and, and see again, let's, let's bring this in here. I, I don't want a double standard. I, I want to be growing in the Lord. I want to be following him. I want to be listening to him. Okay? Here you go. 23. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Be careful with your heart. Gosh, that reminds me of Ephesians 5, 15. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. All right, well, how do I live wisely in, in, in evil days? Well, here you go. Watch over your heart. You, you got to be careful with your heart. I mean, most of us eat junk and enjoy life to the fullest, and then you hit 40 or 45, and you get the life insurance, and they send you down to the Cooper Clinic, and then they run you through this stuff, and then your life is over. Because they're trying to save your life. You see? No more bluebell for breakfast. <laughs> no more biscuits and gravy for a mid-morning snack. No more french fries for, you get it. And suddenly you're very conscious about your heart, very careful about your heart. You know what's happening here in, in uh, this little passage? He's basically walking into the drugstore and sitting down and taking his blood pressure. I, I got a doctor now. I walk in, and they put this thing on my finger, and this machine starts humming. And in about 10 minutes, they start telling me everything about my oxygen and intake and my cells and this and this and this and this. It's a diagnostic. That's what this is. This is a spiritual diagnostic. So number one, careful heart. Watch over your heart. Some passages say, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. The heart is the mind. It's everything about you, but it's your mind. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Go back to Psalm 1. You can't be influenced by scoffers. You can't be influenced by those who are in rebellion to God. But your delight is in the law of the Lord. And when your delight is in the law of the Lord, you're not conformed to this world. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. That's all Psalm 119. It's the word of God being put into your mind, which then changes your heart. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Okay? So the heart is critical. The mind is critical. Do you watch stuff today that you wouldn't watch 10 years ago? Are you ever on the computer and you hear your wife come up the stairs and you hit click? You got off that page? You ever erase your history? You should never have to erase your history.
Let him see it. This is how you get out of pornography. You sign up for something like Covenant Eyes, you have to really want it. You have to really want to kill sin. So you, you got to go to somebody, some sins you can't break by yourself, so you got to go to a brother who can keep his mouth shut, and you confess your sin. You don't want anyone to know. you got to confess it. They'll keep it confidential, and then you pray for one another. Confess your sins one to another, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And you get on something like covenant eyes, and at the end of the month you get a printout of every place he's been and every place you've been, and you talk about it, and you're accountable. And you're probably not going to go to those places anymore because you've got to give it an explanation. You won't have to be ashamed of your history because everything's been brought into the light. So you guard your heart. 24. You need a truthful mouth. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Deceit is a corrosive. It's like Drano under the sink. You, you, you kid lock those, those cabinets under the sink because you don't want your two-year-old guzzling Drano because Drano is a corrosive. Deceit is a corrosive to trust. So you put away from you a deceitful mouth and you ask God to give you a truthful mouth. The eyes. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Uh, one commentator said, the idea is that eyes should look directly forward suggests resolution about remaining in the right way. So you see here, what you've got is you've got a focused eye. He leads me in paths of righteousness. The Lord is my shepherd. You're following Christ. I want to be clean in my own house. Well, I'm going to Vegas on a business trip. Well, be careful. Because you know, you, you, I mean, see, there's the temptation. There's a temptation to a double standard. Because you see, you're safe in Vegas because what you do in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> well, you put that up against the scripture which says, and you can be sure that your sin will find you out. You should not live any different in Vegas than you live in your home in a normal week. You in Vegas? You better get up and read the Word of God. My gosh, you're just asking for it. You go to Vegas, you better take your Bible. Twenty-six. Watch the path of your feet. So, here's what I'd say about this one: you have a careful heart, you have a truthful mouth, you have a focused eye, and here you've got to cripple your own feet. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not, watch this, do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. You've got to cripple your feet against pursuing evil. Because all it does is leads, all it does is lead to destruction. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Now, here's the thing. We're going to struggle with sin 
until the moment we die and we are in the presence of Christ. We've all got our issues, but you cannot stop fighting sin, and you cannot stop fighting temptation. If by the Spirit we are putting to death the deeds of the body, we shall live. John Owen said, either we be killing sin or sin will be killing us. It's a battle to not have a double standard. And the good news is, is that Jesus died for our sins. Steve, I failed so many times. Then you go to Jesus. I failed again. You go to Jesus. Oh, but you go to Jesus. He just keeps on saving. Let's pray. Father, this is convicting, but at the same time, there's such relief that we're under your grace and mercy and that you take our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Every guy in this room is in process. Everybody here is a work in progress. Don't let us stop fighting sin. Keep us turning to you and asking for your help. We want to be the men that you want us to be, but it's going to take some time. When we mess up, make us quick to ask forgiveness in the home. Let us man up with our own deficiencies in our families. And let us show grace to members of our family when they fall short. Our homes need to be safe places because you have made them safe and you have rescued us. Help us with these issues as we are your men. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.